if we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Yes, indeed. And hour number two is now underway. Nine minutes past 10 o'clock. Thanks for being with us on a Tuesday, the 16th morning of the sixth month of the year of our Lord, 2020. I say that year with disgust, I think, now. Every time I say it, I'm going to say it with disgust because 2020 just can not. Every time we think 2020 cannot get worse, it does. It starts with the Chinese coronavirus and the destruction of an extraordinary economy built in large part by the policies of Donald John Trump. It then endures Minneapolis and a horrific murder by a police officer of an African-American setting off race riots and a racial division in this country unlike anything we've seen since the Civil Rights Act. And then, yesterday, we take that Civil Rights Act and the Supreme Court of the United States bastardizes it by way of reimagining uh, Title VII to include not just sex, but eh, how you feel about what your sex is and what you can say about what your sex is. And that, of course, is uh, going to have extraordinary long-term ramifications, perhaps more than any other, beyond the year 2020. Let's get the thoughts now of one of the most respected minds uh, working in conservative punditry today. Of course, I speak of that of Peter Kersenow. Kersenow is a uh, columnist sometimes with National Review. He is a the host of the Kersenow Report here on AM 1420, The Answer. Let's see. He is a best-selling author. He's a Cleveland attorney. And perhaps most importantly, he is the longest-serving member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. Joining us once again on AM 1420, The Answer. Hi, Pete. Bob, how are you? Wow, wait, whoa. Pete, are you there? Pete? I am here. Hey, Pete, Hello. you can't be there because no, no, never has Kirsten now started with, Hi, Bob, how are you? You don't have any numbers to give us? <laughs> 89. What the heck, man? 89 days. The reason I didn't start <laughs> off with it is because I'm conflicted. I usually am very excited about the beginning of any sports season, particularly mm-hmm. baseball and football. But, um, you know, I heard your intro. 2020 is, a, to put it mildly, a weird year. And I'm uh, not very um, optimistic 
about how the football season is going to start out, if it starts out at all, because I have a feeling that it's going to be imbued with political political correctness. I think it's infected the entire society. I think we can't live our lives in freedom as the founders had envisioned and fought for. I think that, um, frankly, I don't, I'm not sure. Look, I'm, I'm a very optimistic person, but uh, the last several weeks have really tested my optimism. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you quite frankly, it truly has. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, uh, because I'm the inveterate optimist, and I also believe this, even though it's not 1968 or 1972, and the country has shifted, but despite that, I do think that we're looking at um, what could be a very positive electoral outcome. I was going to say landslide, but I'll leave that to others, because I think that uh, just as Nixon had the silent majority, and even though I think that majority is smaller now because of uh, the intervening 50 years of political correctness, I do think that most ordinary, normal clear-thinking people are looking at what's transpired over the last several weeks and are recoiling in horror and understand the stakes in the upcoming election and in every subsequent election, whether it's national election, state election, local election. Elections do have consequences. They're not perfect, as we saw from the Supreme Court decision um, yesterday, that even when we prevail and we think that we have placed conservative justices onto the Supreme Court, it always seems like conservatives are disappointed. You know, you never see this yeah. kind of uh, uh, defection from the liberals who walk in lockstep. They, they, they're ideologues. Yeah, you know, they just, you know what they're going to do every single time. You can't, there's not a decision that is imminent where you cannot predict where they're going to land. Same is not true for conservatives. Uh, there's some positive to that, but uh, we saw the negative of it yesterday. I have to say, yeah. you know, I've, uh, I, uh, when I, I testify in confirmation hearings, and I've testified in all the, the last five of the last six, the only one I didn't testify in is Kavanaugh. Um, I take the job seriously, and just very briefly, I go through every labor and employment decision, related decision that these folks have written at the D.C. Uh, I'm sorry, at the either at uh, the circuit court level, or if uh, they issued some decisions at district court level, I read those. I sometimes read their advocacy briefs when they are in private practice, in order to assess where they are in terms of. Um, interpretive doctrine, you know, are they textualist, originalist, blah, 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 you know, um, where do they come down on a whole host of areas related to labor and employment and also civil rights issues, including religious freedom. So I spent literally weeks pouring through Gorsuch's opinions, and I'll just make it very brief. There, this, uh, I never predicted that Gorsuch would have done this. I don't think anybody did. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been uh, appointed or nominated. Um, this, this one took me for a loop. Roberts, yeah, uh, I just tried uh, for him also, but I got to tell you that uh, he didn't appear to be as strong a constitutional conservative as Gorsuch did. So this one uh, took a lot of people um, by surprise, or maybe at least we were disappointed by, severely disappointed. And there are many reasons to be disappointed, because this does incredible violence to the rule of law. No matter what you think in terms of um, gay rights, transsexual rights, or anything else, no matter what you think the law should be or how society should approach these issues, the law is the law, and the integrity of the institution of the court is dependent upon a faithful rendition of what that text says, uh, and especially in relationship to other court decisions. And this one is so far 
in left field. Uh, I know you don't have a, all the Pete, time. Pete, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Before, before we get into to too many other things, and I don't get a chance to get back to this, let me get this from you on Roberts. Um, I spent a good deal of time in the first hour ripping Roberts uh, and Gorsuch. Gorsuch, uh, of course, is stunning because um, he's a Trump appointee, and we haven't seen this kind of behavior from him. Roberts we have. In the Obergefell decision, he wrote marriage into the Constitution. It was oh, no, never was in the Constitution. That was, that was Kennedy. Uh, that was Kennedy. You're, no, you're no, probably but, thinking, no, but I mean... No, thinking, go ahead. You're th- I think you're thinking of, of Kennedy and Obergefell, okay? No, but, well, no, but, is, but I mean, but I mean that uh, Robert sided with that. Robert, Robert sided with that, with, with that, with that, with the majority there, right? Roberts uh, was was complicit in allowing that to be put into the Constitution. In other words, uh, with that decision, uh, marriage, which had never the word marriage never existed in the Constitution, right? And suddenly we said that gay marriage or same sex marriage is a constitutional right. Roberts was on that side, which was my point here. And we also saw him, of course, change the fee in Obamacare to a tax in order to approve Obamacare as being constitutional. You know, the Affordable Care. So my point is, we've seen that from Roberts before, um, and so I was really hard on him, and I think you should be as well, but I want to give you this before you uh, um, go off into another direction. This was from the American Conservative. I read this during the news break here at the top of the hour, Pete. Um, I have heard, writes Rod Dreher at the uh, American Conservative, an argument that Roberts joined the majority in this case in order to retain the right to assign the opinion. If Roberts had joined the other three in the losing dissent, Justice Ginsburg would have written the majority opinion, which would have looked different from what Gorsuch wrote. In other words, the Chief Justice made a strategic move to protect as much religious liberty as he could in the face of this conservative loss. The logic is is better a 6-3 decision with a conservative justice writing the majority than a 5-4 decision with a liberal justice doing so. Any merit to that, do you think, Peter Kirsnow? Um, you know, trying to discern what happens at the Supreme Court is about as difficult as trying to, you know, interpret Sanskrit. So I, I, I think most people should avoid trying to figure out what happened. That's possible. That's, that's always possible. Um, there are a lot of machinations such as that. I don't know, and frankly, for my purposes, I don't care, because this was such an earthquake of a decision that even if Roberts wanted to cabin the decision, so to speak, so it didn't uh, completely overwhelm religious liberty and all all kinds of other ancillary issues, um, the fact of the matter is we have this issue, and the domino effect of this is going to be significant. It's not just limited to what we know right now. Uh, I would commend, so we don't have a, a whole lot of time to talk about this, um, I would commend, and again, this is not a matter of, of what I've done, but it's if anyone is really interested in a complete exposition on the issue, I have a 125-page dissent four years ago to a Civil Rights Commission briefing on religious freedom. If you want to see the ramifications of this, a lot of the predictions are in there, and there's a more detailed explanation. You can just go to the Civil Rights Commission website. Having said that, I think the Alito dissent, and understand, I haven't read the entire decision. It's 130-something pages long. I, I went through the Alito dissent. It's, it's well-crafted. You know, we, we all, it, it, this is one of those things that is so clear, and uh, they so twisted the plain meaning of Title VII that uh, almost any dissent would probably make something um, 
some of the same points as Alito. But this was a well-crafted dissent, but it does highlight the jeopardy that we're in, even going beyond religious liberty, because this goes to the essence of our framework of government, the separation of powers. What we saw here was the usurpation of the legislative power by the court. Again, I really refrain from being uh, critical or pejorative of the court, but this is significant. Because there's nothing in Title VII dealing with um, transsexualism. No one could have contemplated, as Alito says in the dissent in 1964, this is, this is just extraordinary what happened here. I uh, can't overstate this. Um, but in terms of the mechanics of it, what's concerning is going beyond this particular decision, again, which is significant, is that we now have uh, several court cases huge court cases where the Supreme Court in naked fashion has decided to usurp the plain meaning of a statute or the Constitution and either rewrite it to make it say something it didn't say or just simply by brute force insert its own uh, absurd interpretation of it. And it is absurd. It truly is. Now, there's a process. There are 330 million people in the United States. Many of them have the ability to, to vote. Um, You vote for legislators so that they can fashion legislation. You can do it. If you don't like the way the law reads right now, convince your fellow Americans to change the law. That's what this is all about. This removes from Americans their own agency, the power to to craft their own destiny. This is frightening stuff beyond this particular case, which is bad enough. Because the, of course, justices are not elected. That is exactly right. And by the way, thank you for correcting my mistake on Obergefell. Uh, it, he wrote the dissent, Roberts did. He wrote the dissent in that case. My apologies uh, for that. Uh, I, was, I guess I was thinking more specifically of the Obamacare part. Now, right. to, to this, Peter Kirsten, I will have to take our time out here. Uh, I want to talk more about what the uh, court just did. And you mentioned the Alito dissent. And the, it, the, the beginning of the Alito dissent, I think, is extraordinarily important. He said there's one word to describe what we did here today, legislation. That is what they've done. They've legislated, and that is not the purview of the courts, obviously. We'll continue on that with Peter Kersenow, who is a constitutional expert, next on AM 1420. Okay, I've got Peter Kersenow for about five more minutes on this. Then after the bottom of the hour news, Pete and I will transition into policing and race in America because of there uh, a lot of things have happened since uh, since the last time we spoke on that. Pete, um, <laughs> excuse me. What the court did here, the Supreme Court did here, obviously in legislating. That's what uh, uh, Alito wrote in his, his dissent. They have legislated, which is far far beyond their purview. Uh, I want to talk about the impact of that on religion. Now, uh, briefs filed. This is part of Alito's dissent. Briefs filed by a wide range of religious groups, Christian, Jewish, and Muslim, express deep concern that the position now adopted by the court will trigger open conflict with faith-based employment practices of numerous numerous churches, synagogues, mosques, and other religious institutions. They argue that religious organizations need employees who actually live the faith, and that compelling a religious organization to employ individuals whose conduct flouts the tenets of that faith forces the group to communicate an objectionable message. This problem is perhaps most acute when it comes to the employment of teachers. A school standards for its faculty communicate a particular way of life to students, and a violation by the faculty of those precepts will undermine the school's moral teaching. So, Pete, 
you and I both know what's going to happen here. The same reason same-sex couples and transgenders and so on all went to Masterpiece Cake Shop was to get them to say, no, I won't make that cake so they could sue them. You're going to have a massive rush of gay and transgender activists applying for jobs at religious institutions and especially schools, and when they're either turned down or fired after they change their behavior, they're going to try to sue them out of existence. Go. Yeah, and that's just one aspect of it, and it's a troubling enough aspect of it. First of all, uh, everyone should understand that even after you read Alito's decision and what he says some of the ramifications are, Alito's smart enough to understand that we can't even predict the domino effect of this decision. It's going to unfold over years and probably decades, and it's going to be a lot more troubling than we even currently think. We've looked at this issue for a long time um, at the Civil Rights Commission. Courts have examined this issue. Here's one thing I would say that we have to work out, and, and we're going to have to do some pretty good litigating on this. We do have some cases, and at least one significant Supreme Court case, that stands slightly athwart the ability of the um, activists to challenge uh, employment practices of religious institutions. And that is the ministerial exception that you see in the Hosanna Tabor case. Where, but, but the problem is this. Because of this case, it probably, without question, is going to significantly narrow it, if not, some people would argue, obliterate the ministerial exception. And what the ministerial exception is, is the ability of religious institutions to say that, for example, a Catholic school's teacher, those teachers have to instruct on Catholic precepts precepts or consistent therewith and have to comport themselves in a way that's not contrary to Catholic doctrine or, or um, um, you know, even beyond Catholic doctrine, certain rules of the diocese that are established in order to promote Catholic doctrine. Basically general uh, biblical principles. Well, yes, yes. So this, is, this decision, though, throws that into some form of, into a little bit of confusion. And there's no doubt that there is going to be an effort to test the bounds of the ministerial exception to make it as narrow as possible. Many of us believed that it was already very narrow. So the, I'm very concerned about religious and religious-affiliated institutions' ability to hew to their, their practice and their beliefs. I think it's going to be under withering assault, um, this is something that, it, it, this is serious. Um, you know, again, I'm an optimist, but um, we took a big blow, and it goes, uh, you know, if, if you don't care about religion, it is going to affect First Amendment rights with respect to speech also. It will affect the manner in which people comport themselves in the workplace, how employers, as an example, I think um, everyone understands that this could have an effect on the provision of health care services. Sure. Uh, employer-based health care services. We all also believe that it's going to have an effect on things such as restrooms and shower facilities and locker room facilities and on and on and on. And believe me, it's going to be affected. There's no ifs, ands, or buts, and those are going to be test cases that are going to immediately be brought. But one thing we know when we see these types of uh, groundbreaking, earth-shattering decisions is we can't predict the ultimate outcome, but it's going to be an erosion over time that if we reflect back, if, if we here in 2020 had the ability to get into a time machine and go forward to, say, 2035, we'll be astounded at where we are as a society. And the only real way I can see of coming back is actually just a, a complete overhaul, an, an overturning 
of this decision, and those things don't happen. You know, uh, they happen with, I mean, about as frequently as, you know, an asteroid hits, hits the world. How does uh, that so even happen, Pete? I, I wasn't, I mean, how, how can a Supreme Court decision be overturned? Well, we overturn, you know, we overturn the Dred Scott decision as, as a okay, okay. example, okay? You can overturn it, but it, remember, <laughs> it took a while for that it's to happen. It's extraordinarily difficult. It, yeah, it's extraordinarily difficult. So uh, you don't hold your breath on that. The only other thing you can do is, um, you know, you change Title Seven. That's not going to happen in the current zeitgeist. So, folks, um, this wasn't a mon- momentous decision. Regardless of where you stand on the merits of the decision, understand that the maneuvering that got us to this point pretends very, very troublingly for anything related to legislation, the Constitution, the rule of law, because we had a court that acted like pirates, as Alito says, and took the Constitution and pretended they were interpreting its text and were doing just the opposite. And we didn't even get a chance, Pete, to talk about the other three bad decisions yesterday on gun rights, on uh, death penalty, and on sanctuary cities. How about that? Uh, Pete, we'll come right back after the news on AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, it's 10.35. We've got a few more minutes left with Peter Kersenow. Spent a lot of time on the Supreme Court decision yesterday because of its long, 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 long-lasting effects. Ramifications were going to be fe- are going to be felt for years. Ch- women. Pete, we haven't even talked about that, and I don't want to do it now because I don't want to take away from this. Uh, but we haven't even talked about what this is going to do to women. And, of course, women in private places, uh, showers, locker rooms. This has been an ongoing debate at the state level in a lot of places for a long time. But now that the Supreme Court has confirmed on a federal level that anybody... Uh, who uh, says this is what I am and this is what I feel like can pretty much have uh, uh, protected rights to do just about anything and everything in that on that basis with Title VII. I think women are in very, very serious jeopardy in a lot of ways now. <laughs> Excuse me. But let's pivot. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's pivot to race, uh, Peter Kersenow, and uh, policing in America. We all saw what happened on Friday night. Uh, I'm sure you reacted to it in the same way everybody else did over the weekend, the video of Rayshard Brooks being shot by a police officer after he was arrested for drunk driving and for passing out in a Wendy's drive through lane, a peaceful arrest every step of the way until he decided he didn't want to be arrested, probably because he was on parole. He fought with the officers, hit them, stole one of their tasers, uh, ran, turned around and fired it at an officer, and and the officer returned fire with his sidearm, killing Brooks with two shots to the back. Immediate firing. Mayor, or excuse me, police chief of Atlanta stepped down the next morning. And uh, now the prosecutor there is weighing murder charges against the police officer. Um, I feel like this guy has been sacrificed because they didn't want any more riots. They already burned down the Wendy's, and I think they immediately fired him, and the chief stepped down. Just They had to sacrifice the chief, too, and so, to some extent, just to stop more rioting from happening in the wake of what happened to, to George Floyd. Go ahead and take it. Well, what's interesting is, you know, ostensibly, <laughs> the protests and the riots we see are an extension of uh, a deprivation of rights and due process to a group or a race of individuals um, over the years. And, uh, you know, as I've discussed with you, the narrative that cops are disproportionately targeting blacks. But again, it's really based on an objection to what many perceive to be a failure of due process and equal treatment for individuals on the basis of race. And what we've done here in this case is it may um, 
in fact be the case. I mean, I saw the video. I have my own conclusion about it. But what we should be affording everybody involved is an opportunity to explain what's going on in due process. And I think we, we have a huge movement underway supported by a lot of actors from media to politics to you name it that are essentially requiring um, obedience to a particular narrative and essentially deprive people of due process rights. I mean, people are being fired summarily. People are being shut down in terms of the First Amendment rights summarily. We've seen what's happened with a number of professors, people in corporations, who if you don't hew to a particular narrative, then your job is going to be taken away from you, or your business is going to be destroyed, or you may be incarcerated or summarily discharged because the presumption is that you're a bad guy, and on top of that, we don't want our city to burn down. Uh, regardless of where you ultimately come down on the situation in Atlanta, okay, and I can understand why people might have different interpret interpretations of it, but that's the subject of an investigation. I mean, I've saw the videotape. I have a certain conclusion about it. Others may see it a different way. Uh, but the thing is that we have gotten to a point in society where we don't operate in good faith anymore. We preserve, presume the worst of everyone, and it exacerbates tensions. This is, I, I said it, I think, at the outset. I don't think I've ever in my lifetime been as concerned about the direction in which this country is going as I am right now. Um, th th we're down a very dangerous path that transcends race relations. I mean, this really goes to the essence of who we are as a free republic. And are we going to replicate some of the mistakes out of history, some of the more serious and profound sakes, uh, mistakes? Um, I don't think I'm overstating it. I'm trying to be as circumspect as possible. But if you aren't you know, completely alarmed by what we've seen over the last few weeks, but more importantly, how our leaders have reacted to this, the complete capitulation to the mob. That's a scary prospect, and it's so un-American. Are there bad things that happen in America, and have there been historically bad things that happen in America? Almost all Americans agree. People of goodwill agree. But what we're looking at right now is not a remedy for historical wrongs. What we're looking at now is an attempt to assert power, and many of the people trying to or manipulating this assertion of power don't have American interests at heart. And by that I mean what they are seeking is something that is wholly un-American in the way we've been practicing, in the way uh, our Constitution envisions America to, to be structured. This is a very, very difficult period of time, and I hope most Americans, and I do think most Americans are aware that we're going down a bad path. The bad part about this is, as opposed to, as I said, the 60s or any other time in, a, in American history, is that people who operate the levers of power are the ones who are tamping down or, or using downward pressure on Americans as a whole and mandating that we act in a certain consistent way. Everyone that I know of, I'm sure there's some outliers out there, but almost everyone agrees with, you know, treating people with dignity, treating people um, without discrimination, you know, all of those things. Everyone, I don't know of any single person that I know personally or I've seen on television or heard on the radio or read that wasn't horrified by what happened to George Floyd. Not one, not one. 
Neither why. Yet, yet we are out here ripping society apart based on this construct that the left has that the United States is irredeemably racist and populated by racists from top to bottom. The very fact that people in positions of power are calling for, voting for, defunding the police tells you we've reached peak insanity. And that's one of the reasons why I have a sliver of optimism, because I do think the majority of Americans recoil in horror from that and will try to right the ship come November. But November is just one small step if we prevail, because we saw from you know, the Gorsuch opinion that we've got a long, long road to hoe on this thing. Yeah, no question about it. And uh, and Pete, I want to ask you again. I, I understand steps need to be taken to reform certain elements of policing in America. I understand that the Derek Derek Chauvin's of the world should not be on the force, and they should not be allowed to do the things that he did. But what do you make of the president's executive order today, essentially saying, I'll fix it or do the best I can? It's a three-pronged approach um, uh, that involves tracking officers so they can't just get fired or suspended from one job and say, I'm leaving and I'm going to take another job, and his record doesn't follow him. There's a few different elements to this. Joe Biden immediately came out and said it's not enough. It's a race-neutral uh, uh, idea that, of co- that is in response to a race, uh, bi- racially biased problem. Should the, the the president be involved here? Do the feds need to be involved in the, quote, reformation of police in America? Uh, I, I'm going to be honest and just say I don't know, but I'll give okay. you my opinion. I think right. I, th- you know, I say I don't know because I think this is something that requires more deliberation and study when we're acting in knee-jerk fashion to something that is, you know, an extremely important issue right now. Uh, but I think that it merits reflection and cooling down before we start issuing proposals. And the basis, the, the evidence of that is, if somebody starts saying defund the police, you know right there that no one's, not, no one's thinking clearly. This is, requires something. It's so important that it requires passions to cool and allow intellect to start to operate. When you start doing radical things, and I'm not saying the president is in this case. I, I think, yeah. from what I've read, it appears as if these things are, you know, fairly common sense they're not yeah, i think it's a measured know, approach without, right, without it, being it is, radical. it is now i don't think personally i prefer that the federal government at that level not be involved in these things unless you've got something that has truly national implications there's commerce issues blah 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 blah, blah. i think this is something that needs to be looked at at the local level because each locality is different. Each locality has different racial compositions. Each locality has other considerations with respect to safety. We're not all the same. That's the beauty of the United States of America. You can fashion remedies to the exigencies of your particular location. I think that's the, the proper approach. If I disagree with it, and I think it's just incredibly bad, but if Seattle wants to completely abdicate... Um, it's in law enforcement operations. Let them do so. That's a laboratory of democracy. They will implode, and we all learn that that's we, what we knew, and that is just a, a completely brain-dead decision. If Minneapolis wants to do that, you know, I feel sorry for the residents of Minneapolis, but they will exercise their right to leave, and property values will plummet, and then others will learn from that. Uh, but I think a one-size-fits-all approach normally in these situations, matters of police power in the ex- uh, exercise of police power are a local and state function it's best relegated to individuals closer to the situation 
two quick questions and answers left in the next four minutes, Pete. One is going to be a challenge to what you just said. President Trump says that if Seattle's police and local uh, uh, leadership, including the mayor and the governor of Washington, Jay Inslee, won't do anything to retake the seven-block Chaz zone that has been carved out, including the... um, the uh, running out of a, a, a police precinct of all officers and taking it over as their little headquarters. He says, if the locals won't do anything, we will do something because we cannot allow that to stand for, for fear that it's going to spread to other cities. And they're already trying it in Portland and they tried it in Nashville and in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, should the president, and this is a little bit different from what you just said, but should the president indeed send federal authorities or federal boots uh, to reclaim Seattle for the uh, city. Yeah, there, there's a political answer to that, and then there's you know a legal and constitutional answer to that. I think the president does have the ability to do so, and may even be impelled to do just that because okay. it's tantamount to an insurrection. Uh, smarter minds than I have written about this. Andy McCarthy, for example, says the president's almost mandated to do something like this. Then the political aspect of this is in. In order to have the best outcome for Americans, what's the best thing for the president to do, given all the circumstances under which we currently exist? Is it better for him to send troops in and then all kinds of uh, H-E-double-L break loose, Uh, both from a political perspective, because we can see what the governor of Washington and the mayor of Washington are doing, and Trump will get blamed for no matter what happens, or is it better for him to let this thing play out on the local level, okay? In other words, the president does have discretion in this area. Even if he has the right, if you have the right, it's still incumbent, I think, upon responsible individuals to exercise appropriate discretion for the best outcome for America as a whole. And here, the best outcome may be let this thing just rot and winnow away. Let this be an example to the rest of America that if local officials do this, let people vote for these kinds of crazy local officials. It's a lesson to the rest of us that we don't want to do this. It's also a lesson to other office holders to see the kind of wreckage that occurs and the political ramifications of it that they won't dare do something like this again. I'm hopeful again that a message is sent in November to these office holders that your first responsibility to this responsibility as uh, elected officials is to secure the property and persons of the citizenry. And if you're not going to do that, you've forfeited you know, any right to act as a mayor, a governor, whatever it may be. So, again, long-winded answer. I hate to equivocate on this, but if I were advising the president, unless there were, you know, uh, uncontrolled violence that began to spread and the governor and mayor refused to act, unless that happened, I would let the process play out. Let the pressure from local residents build on the mayor and governor so they do the right thing, because it's instructive then to the rest of these idiot mayors and woke governors that, you know what, your job is on the line here too. And I think it's also instructive for the rest of America. Again, because of the weird political environment in which we currently exist, that is Anything Trump does is the worst thing that ever occurred in the world. I think a, a measured approach by the president is the best approach for Americans in this situation until such time as mm-hmm. violence gets out of control. And I think he has a, an insuperable responsibility to go after it and make things right. Pete, last thing, uh, and I know we're out of time already, but um, a previous caller uh, who had an accent that I couldn't place um, 
said that 60 years ago he came to this country with all of the hopes of, of uh, uh, you know, that all immigrants have when they come to the United States of achieving the American dream. He said he's on the verge of returning to his home country because this country is not the one that he moved to, the one that we see right now, the one that is enveloped in this massive racial division, uh, riots in the streets, burning buildings, the inability of innocent people to defend themselves. Now this Supreme Court ruling is what put them over the top, that people can't have religion and without having it infested with uh, this sort of politics, etc. He said he's considering moving back. What would you say to someone who is an immigrant to this country about the, the state of this country today. What would you advise immigrants who are thinking about coming here? Is this the America you once knew that everybody wanted to be a part of? It's not the America I once knew. I say that with, uh, I mean, it, it grieves me to say that because I love this country so much as all of your listeners do. Mm-hmm. It's not the same country. We are at a tipping point. We I've said this a number of times to your listeners, um, that we are at a tipping point or near a tipping point. I think we may have gone over the tipping point. Now, having said that, we have an amazing country that can remedy itself at the, the, the you know <laughs> the turn of an election. And while I understand what this immigrant is saying, some of the immigrants hew to the ideals of America more so than Americans who have had the luxury of just taking America for granted. Yeah, I'd still say it's the greatest nation in the history of the world. It remains such. We have the capacity to turn this around and return to the kind of country that he came to or maybe even fled to. Uh, we do have that resiliency that I don't think any other country in the history of the world ever had. So, look, I remain an optimist about this country. I am really, really concerned about where we are. This is, a serious, it, this is the most serious point in time in my lifetime. Yeah, uh, but all of ours we'll prevail, been. Bob. We're going to prevail, but it requires I, each and every one of us, all of your listeners, all you great people out there listening, to pull together and understand that you're right, and we're right, and we understand what America's all about. All about. We're going to restore it to its previous greatness. You see, you used the same phraseology I did yesterday. I said yesterday we're at a tipping point and may have gone over it, and I think you're 100% right, and I wish you could bottle your optimism and sell it because I would buy. Right now I am feeling very, very skeptical and cynical as opposed to optimistic. So uh, you're going to be optimistic Bob. for all of us. Peter Kirsten out. Thank you, my friend. God bless. Take care, Bob. 10.50, final break, final segment coming up. All right, it's uh, 10.57. No time for any more phone calls on the program today. And I apologize to those who have been waiting on hold. Please get in early tomorrow, and I'll get you on the air earlier. I want to f- close with this. Uh, I want to follow up on um, what I just said to Peter Kirshnow, who said he remains optimistic that we will win. I-, I don't know what winning looks like right now, to be honest with you. And that's hard to say because President Trump, of course, came into office talking about winning, winning, winning. You're going to get so tired of winning. We're going to do so much winning, you won't be able to stand it. And I love that positivity, and I love that optimism. And Peter says he's still optimistic. And I responded, I wish I shared that. I wish you could bottle it and sell it. I'd buy because I'm very cynical right now. And I am. I think when the Supreme Court does what they did yesterday, taking away people's freedom, taking away business and religious institutions' freedom, redefining what a woman is, harming women. When I see the racial division being, the flames of that being fanned over and over and over again by a willing media and a whole lot of other people with very nefarious goals in mind, 
I'm very, very cynical about what this country really is and whether or not its future will be as bright as uh, it could be or perhaps as our past has been as we became the greatest nation on earth. But I'm going to close with this. We need and absolutely must give ourselves a chance to overcome that potentially devastating future by re-electing President Trump. Will he solve all of our problems? Absolutely not. He's president now, and we are enduring these problems through no fault of his. But what I want you to do is I want you to consider all of what's going on right now and then project it out to four or eight years of Democratic presidential rule and a Democratic majority in the Senate as well as the House. If you think this looks bad now, project that out and make it your mission between now and November to stop that from happening. We'll talk tomorrow morning about it more on AM 1420, The Answer.